Well, we are finding ourselves this evening right in the middle of a series in John 17. And if you've been following along, you know that that chapter, the whole chapter of John 17, is an extended prayer that Jesus prays to the Father. And each Sunday that we've been going through this prayer, I've been reading the entire thing, praying the entire thing, um, just to to get the whole context, even though we're only looking at it in in, in little chunks. So tonight we're looking at verses 13 through 20. And so tonight I'm just going to read verses 1 through 20. And I'm going to do it in a different translation. I'm going to do it in a paraphrase translation, just so it's fresh for those of you who have been here for three weeks in a row. Like, seriously, you're going to read the whole thing again. So stand with me. I'm going to read it out of the message this time. And and you will hear uh, it with a little bit different voice. Jesus prayed, Father, it's time. Display the bright splendor of your Son, so the Son, in turn, may show your bright bright splendor. You put Him in charge of everything human, so He might give real and eternal life to all in His charge. And this is the real and eternal life, that they know you, the one and only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by completing down to the last detail what you assigned me to do. And now, Father, glorify me with your own splendor, the very splendor I had in your presence before there was a world. I spelled out your character in detail to the men and women you gave me. They were yours in the first place. Then you gave them to me, and they have now done what you said. They now know beyond the shadow of a doubt that everything you gave me is firsthand from you. For the message you gave me, I gave them, and they took it and were convinced that I came from you. They believed that you sent me, and I pray for them. I'm not praying for the God-rejecting world, but for those you gave me, for they are yours by right. Everything mine is yours and yours mine, and my life is on display for them. For I'm no longer going to be visible in this world, but they'll continue in the world. While I return to you, Holy Father, guard them as they pursue this life that you conferred as a gift through me, so they can be one heart and one mind, as we are one heart and mind. As long as I am with them, I guarded them in the pursuit of the life which you gave through me, I even posted a night watch, and not one of them has got away, except for the rebel bent on destruction, the exception that provided the rule of Scripture, or proved the rule of Scripture. But now, I'm returning to you. I'm saying these things in the world's hearing so my people can experience my joy completed in them. I gave them your word, and the godless world has hated them because of it, because they didn't join the world's ways just as I didn't join the world's ways. I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you guard them from the evil one. They are no more defined by the world than I'm defined by the world. Make them holy. Consecrate them in truth. Your word is consecrating truth. In the same way that you gave me a mission in the world, I give them a mission in the world. I'm consecrating myself for their sakes. So there be truth consecrated in their mission. And I'm praying not only for them, 
but also for those who believe in me through them, because of them and their witness about me. Lord, it is strange to preach on a prayer. So we start by beginning praying this prayer after you. Some of the parts leap off the page for us and immediately make sense and resonate in our hearts. And some parts are wordy and confusing. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that as we dig deeper into this prayer you preserved for us, this prayer of Jesus, that you would not only help us to understand it, but to make it our own, to pray it, to be encouraged by it, and to bless others by it. Thank you. Amen. Why don't you know that I, from time to time, might read from a different translation, especially a paraphrase, to freshen it up, especially if we've gone over the same scripture in a more wooden translation over and over. Uh, but I'm never studying out of the message or you know, doing exegesis out of that. Uh, just so you know, if you're wondering about your own Bible study techniques, I always prefer that, that you read in, in a couple translations um, and uh, from more wooden like a New American Standard or ESV onto something more dynamic equivalent like an NIV or NRSV. Uh, something like that. So if you want to talk to me about that later, go for it. Uh, I know Dave understands what I'm saying. But, yeah. So like I said before, we find ourselves right in the middle of a five-part series in John 17. This is week three. I creatively have been titling these, uh, Father, Hear His Prayer, part one, part two, part three. So if you look at your bulletin, that's where you're at. And I, I recognize uh, we've got some of our older kids up with me. Uh, uh, today I'm going to preach in a way that I'll actually have seven little point so if you want to grab a bulletin or a piece of paper you can you can follow along pretty easily today but what I want to do is just for the sake of reminding us and, and especially if you're joining us for the first time in this series right in the middle of it let me just let me just hit some of the highlights of what we've done in the first couple weeks the first thing I just want to remind us of is that in other gospels we read about Jesus going off to pray in fact Luke's gospel is full of that Jesus withdraws he goes out to pray it's like, what is he saying? Like, we never know what he's actually talking about or praying about. He just goes off and does it. In, in two of the Gospels, in Matthew and Luke, we, we hear Jesus giving the disciples instructions on how to pray. And so we get what, what's known as the Lord's Prayer, right? And so Jesus is teaching us how to pray. But, but we never really get to hear what Jesus is actually praying to the Father when it's just him and God and, and what's on his heart. And that's what's so significant about John 17, is that this is just a whole chapter of getting to listen in on Jesus praying. And we learn what's important to him. And so what is important to him? Well, this, not to be egotistical, but it appears that we are important to him. If you look at what he's actually praying here. Jesus wanted us to hear this prayer. He intended for the disciples to hear him. And the disciple John, thank goodness, saw fit to record these precious last prayed words of Jesus for all future disciples to hear. Jesus prays this prayer about us and he prays for us because he knows that our eternal life is dependent upon knowing God through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ crucified. 
So he prays that the Father would glorify him and enable him to accomplish his final goal. That night, he's going to be arrested. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to suffer shame and abuse and torture. And he's praying on this final few hours before that happens that God would help him to see it through. Because as much as Jesus is divine, he's 100% man at the same time. Prone to weakness, prone to pain, all of these things. So, Father, glorify me. Help me to do this thing that will glorify you and bring eternal life for people. Jesus knows that our eternal life is dependent on us knowing God through Jesus and Jesus crucified. And so we praise that the Father would keep us in his name, that the Father would protect you and me and all disciples, that he would protect our faith, and that he would see to it that we make it home into his loving arms at the end of life, despite our sin and our shame and how we feel about our faith today or how fickle we feel about it tomorrow. And Jesus knows that our eternal life and the eternal lives of all who come after us are dependent upon knowing God through Jesus and Jesus crucified. And this evening, we are going to look at verses 13 through 20, where Jesus prays about our mission in the world. He prays for us and for those who are going to come to believe through us. Now, as a follower of Jesus myself, I'm always looking for ways to help me go deeper than just the surface with scripture, to go deeper with Jesus in prayer. And of course, as a pastor, I'm always looking for ways to help you do that same thing. And so uh, what I want to do is do more than just study this prayer in John 17. I want to do better than just unearth the deep theology and the good news contained in the prayer. Because as great as those things are, I also want to help us to see that this prayer can be a guide to our own prayers. It can actually help us get deeper with Jesus. I believe that Jesus wanted us to overhear him praying, not only to encourage us, but to invite us to pray along with these same themes that he's praying. And we can make it our own. So does that sound okay? Does it sound good? This can be devotional. So like I said, we're going to be focusing on verses 13 through 20, and and there's a shift of emphasis here. The emphasis is on the mission of the disciples, and in particular, and this is where if you're a note taker and then you have your bulletin, there's a little thing that says sermon notes, you might want to put numbers, one through seven, because I think that there's seven gifts that Jesus prays for us uh, in, in this mission to the world, okay? Seven gifts. And the first gift that Jesus prays that the Father would give us is his joy. The first gift is his joy. Let's just pause there for a minute. I can't even get past this one word. In a great many epic tales, the lead protagonists usually set out on a mission that is much bigger than they are. The tasks asked of them seem impossible, uh, but along the way something happens where they receive gifts to help them accomplish their mission. So, for example, uh, maybe kids, you've read this one. Uh, the, in The Lion and the Witch and the Wardrobe, you've got these four Pevensey children, right, who end up in Narnia, and they, they, they end up, they realize that they're in the midst of this great battle between the White Witch and her armies and, and Aslan and his resistance forces, right? And, and it's way bigger than, than the four of them can handle on their own. And so, right before the battle gets really rough, who shows up of all people but Father Christmas? I just love that little twist. So he shows up, and, and I love that he gives them food, too. That's a very important part of any epic tale. It's good, good feasting. But he gives them 
practical gifts. He gives Peter, does anyone remember what he gives Peter? Okay, and what does he give Susan? And a horn, okay? Does anyone remember, that's not a Wilson, what he gave Lucy? What did he give Lucy? Okay, we got Julia back there. She's a, a physical therapist assistant. She knows a file of healing solution. That's right, a healer. So, so they get these gifts to help them in their mission. They're pretty practical. Like Father Christmas, as cool as he is, he doesn't give them Legos or video games. He gives them like stuff for their mission. But when Jesus prays about giving these seven gifts to the church and her mission in the world, wouldn't you think that Jesus would ask for more practical things? Like I could imagine, how about a magic treasure chest that never runs out of gold resources that, that would fund the church's mission forever? Wouldn't that be more practical than joy? Or what about the gift of favor with the powers that be so that you could convince evil, evil regimes to turn toward good? Wouldn't that be a better gift than, uh, than joy? Or what about just the gift of creating good music and movies after like 1900? Uh, boy, that, the church could really use that, but that's the off topic right now. Um, but, but Jesus doesn't start with what we would deem as practical gifts. Instead, he starts with joy. With joy. Nerd, I'm just, this is a nerd sermon, sorry. Uh, it reminds me of Lord of the Rings, actually. Uh, in that great tale, the Fellowship of the Ring goes through some trials, and then right before the stuff really gets hard, right, they've just lost Gandalf to the Balrog. Sorry, just nerd alert. Nerd alert, nerd alert! Uh, they end up in this forest, Lothlorien, where Galadriel, the queen of the forest, is there, this powerful elf queen. And she does give some practical gifts. She gives some daggers and swords and cloaks and uh, a file of light. She gives some practical things, but then she bring, it gives two things in particular that don't seem very practical. She gives three locks of her hair to Gimli the dwarf, and she gives a box with soil from her country and seeds to Sam. They're about ready to go to a place, Mordor, where the very air, right, makes you suffocate, uh, where there is just evil and powerful beings that they have to overcome, and she gives hair and seeds. Why is that? Why would she do that? I think she takes into account that our most challenging obstacles are not merely physical. They're not even primarily economic. Our biggest obstacles in life are often a lack of beauty or truth and a lack of hope. Gimli was a squat, bumbling dwarf, but he was made speechless when he saw Galadriel's beauty. And what, when asked, Gimli, what do you want for a gift? He said, I would love just to have, he could ask her for anything. He asked for one hair from her beautiful head. One hair. Now this beauty, and she gave him three, and that is a beautiful thing, not only because of the magnificence of her hair, but of her grace in giving him three times what he asked for. And that would carry him, the beauty that he held with him would carry him, her deed would carry him through the darkest moments of his adventures to come. In a similar way, when Sam would finally return home only to find the shire raised and burned, he had literally 
and figuratively in a box, the seeds of hope for a new creation and a fresh start. The scriptures tell us that the Father is the provider of every good gift. Jesus teaches us not to worry about food and clothing. He says, look at the birds of the air. They don't toil. They don't work extra hard. They don't work extra hours. They don't try and get overtime. And the Heavenly Father, He feeds them. And the, the, the flowers of the fields are more finely clothed than Solomon in all His glory. Don't worry, He says. You'll be provided for. But Jesus prays for seven things that are less tangible, seemingly less practical. The things that wouldn't like, you wouldn't uh, likely pray for yourself, but you might take for granted. And I want to suggest that these seven things are vital to our mission, and the first is joy. Not just joy, by the way, look at the text, it says Jesus' joy, and not just Jesus' joy, but Jesus prays that his joy would be made full in the disciples, in us. Now, why joy? This is a prayer about mission. You could argue that if Jesus' disciples are full of joy, that's a better way to do mission because it's joy is contagious, right? And, and the world needs a little joy, and so he's sending us out full of his joy to be attractive to the nations. I, I think that there's some truth in that, but there's also more to it than that. Where does this joy come from? It comes from, Jesus says, the words which he speaks. Listen, these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy full in themselves. Now, what things is he speaking about? Remember, context. Just look right before. In context, he's speaking of the request that the Father keep the disciples in his name. That no matter what comes your way, if the Father has given us to the Son through faith, then he will not allow us to come to ultimate destruction at the end of our days. That's a cause for joy. That's a huge cause for joy. If you are here and you have been following Jesus, have you ever had times when you doubt, gosh, some of the things I'm doing or thinking or feeling, I wonder sometimes if I'm really okay with God. We should pay attention to those feelings and maybe make some changes in our lives. But let me tell you what Jesus is saying, that through faith in Christ, your salvation is not dependent on how you feel, amen? It's not, de not dependent on the last mistake you made, on whether or not right before you died, if you had more good than bad. Pagan religions think that way, where there's a scale that they put your heart on. And if your heart is heavier than your good deeds, you're in trouble. That's not grace. That's not the gospel. What Jesus is saying is that you can have joy, real joy from Jesus, because your salvation is wrapped up in who God is, not in how good you are. And it makes me want to pray, if you're looking for how to pray this prayer. Father, hear his prayer. Fill us with his joy. Help us to believe that through it all, you'll keep us in your name. Gift number two, the word. Jesus has given us his word. Not merely his words, but the word. What does that mean? Of course, on the surface, it means scripture. But you've got to remember, in John 17, at the time Jesus is on his knees praying this prayer, the only scripture that there was was what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. That's a lot of good stuff in there, but it doesn't even include the gospels. It doesn't even include Paul or, or, or Hebrews or any of, any of those things, right? So there's a degree to where the word is that, but context, context, context. Remember what Schoon read in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word in John's Gospel is none other than Jesus, God in the flesh. And Jesus said to Thomas, also in John's Gospel, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus is saying that as a gift to his missional church, he's given himself not just an image of God the Father, but a relationship with God the Father. And that relationship is made known through the scriptures and through the spirit of Jesus himself, which is poured out upon all of his believers. In fact, this makes incredible sense in the context of John's gospel because we're in chapter 17, right? In chapter 16, we learn that one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to make known the word to us even after Jesus ascends into heaven. And that's a great gift to a church. Father, hear his prayer. Thank you for your word, Jesus. Help us to abide in him. That's a way you can pray regarding that second gift. The third gift Jesus gives us is deliverance from the evil one. And there's important theology here I think we need to pause and recognize. It's in vogue in the 21st century, well, really the 20th century as well, to deny the existence of the evil one, otherwise known as the devil or the Satan, which literally means the accuser. If people admit to the, rea- to the reality of evil at all, and trust me, there's lots that you'll run into who don't even believe in evil, they just believe in bad choices some people make, They don't like to admit that there's a malevolent personality bent on people's destruction. And, hey, I admit it, and you'd have to admit if you're honest with yourself, that that idea sounds a bit archaic, like something out of a fantasy book or an ancient myth or a horror movie, which I have a theory on that. Why do you think there's so many horror movies that that sell with those types of of images and themes? I think it's because there's a resonance in humanity that we know that, that those things are there another topic, maybe over a pint sometime. Okay, and yet scripture speaks clearly about evil, the forces of evil such as demons and the evil one, the prince of darkness, and it's not just an odd scripture here or there. In the gospels, Jesus is repeatedly in conflict with demons and the evil one, so if we're trying to take Jesus seriously as his disciples, then we also have to take seriously the fact that he recognized the reality of the evil one and evil forces. And we aren't allowed to explain it away as an outdated personification of negative energy from the point of view of ancient pre-scientific peoples. You can just listen to the podcast. I'm not going to say it again. But anyway, <laughs> we're not allowed, if we take Jesus seriously, we can't just take parts of him seriously and then like, well, maybe he didn't realize science. Okay? I, th- I think the creator of heaven and earth kind of knows stuff. But at the same time, we recognize two important realities. In all the encounters with Jesus and evil, uh, the evil one and his demons, Jesus wins. And it's like not even close. Like even when he walks up to a dude with demons, they're like, ah, don't send me here or there. Just like, please be, send us to pigs or whatever. I mean, it's like he just says words and they come out. It's not even a contest. As Jesus is, is preparing um, for his death to deliver the knockout blow to the evil one's plan of destruction, he prays that the Father would keep you and me from the evil one. And that's great news. That is great news because, first, it isn't a prayer against pain or struggle or even death. Now, why is that great news? It's great news because if you have built up a faith 
in your mind or in, in your upbringing or your faith culture where if bad things happen to you, it means you've done something wrong or God isn't there for you. That's not biblical faith. And that type of mentality will shatter your faith because bad things will happen to you. Right? There's loss. There's pain. There's disease. And, and what this text is saying, the reason it's good news, is because in Christ, when those things happen, Jesus is saying, he's praying that the Father would prevent the evil one from getting his hook in you and causing that to, ca- to, to make you faithless. Okay? The prayer is that the evil one would not be allowed to eternally destroy us or our mission. And second, here's another piece of good news. If Jesus prays it, it's like as good as done. What hope we have, no matter how bad things seem, Jesus has prayed that the Father would keep us. And so this gift makes me want to pray, Father, hear his prayer. And we can join in by praying the prayer Jesus taught us to pray, that last part where it says, deliver us from the evil one, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever how we need that to be true. Amen. This leads us directly to the fourth gift Jesus prays about uh, to accomplish our mission. The reminder that through him we are citizens of another world, citizens of God's kingdom. Now, I want to make it a, ver- a very important distinction here um, before we move any further. There are two Greek words most usually employed to say the English word world. Okay? So, I want you to say the word gain. Yeah, it's like G-A-I-N, but it's more like G-E-N. Just stretch the E out a little bit. So gain, gain. Okay, so for example, in Genesis, we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When we take that Hebrew sentence and we translate it into Greek, we get, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the gain. The planet earth, is often described with the Greek word gain. And Jesus' parables about the sower sowing seed in the soil into the earth, into the dirt, he uses the word gain. When talking about geography and land, the word is most often gain. Gain is the Greek word most often used in the Bible when we're talking about creation, the earth, the land, the soil, nature. And when talking about those things, the Bible is crystal clear. Creation, the land, the soil, the earth, it is good. We are people of the earth. People created to work the land. The first human being was labeled or titled or called the Adam. Literally, I don't know if you knew this, but in Genesis 2, it's not Adam as like a proper name. It's Ha-Adam, the Adam. Adam is a word that comes from Adama, which means the earth man or the dirt man. God gathered up dirt, breathed his ruach, his breath upon it, and it became an Adam. Okay, so, so we're connected to creation. And when the word gain describes the planet earth or the land or the, uh, it is good. And you need to hear that because uh, God declares a good creation from the very beginning to the very end. 
So when Jesus is praying about his disciples not being of this world, he isn't talking negatively about creation or implying that we're going to some other planet or place. The word Jesus uses isn't gain, it's cosmos. Say cosmos. Cosmos. Cosmos can be used to describe the heavens and the earth, sometimes it is, but in John's gospel, it's usually used to describe culture or society, specifically human society organized around anything else but God. That's the world. Some societies place family above anything else, ancestor worship and loyalty to family above God or individual freedom. Other cultures place the common good above all, even if it takes a dictator to force everybody to give their fair share. And still other places place the illusion of of the American dream as the center of policies or practices. These are all examples of the world. And Jesus gives us the gift of citizenship in a different world, the kingdom of heaven. That means that if we feel out of place in this world, in this culture, and we ought to at some extent, uh, uh, we shouldn't be discouraged about that. We're from a different atmosphere altogether. The the closer we are to being Christ-like, the the more weird kind of the air feels and the way things work in economics and politics and, um, you know, arts and entertainment. You know, there's redeemable things in all of those aspects, but there's also some kind of, oh, that's quite line up with Jesus. We're from a different economic structure where we don't have to fear scarcity or not having enough because we know we have a Father who provides. So this part of the prayer invites us to pray, Father, hear his prayer. Help us to trust in our true citizenship. Help us to love the people in the world while rejecting the world's values when they come into conflict with your values. So quick side note. Not everything in the world, just because it doesn't have a Christian stamp on it or a fish on it or from the Bible, not everything is bad. In fact, I would argue that most things in the world are twisted forms of good, which is why it should never surprise us when a secular author or filmmaker or musician comes up with something that's, boy, that song is 80% awesome. You know, there's a lot of truth out there that isn't coming from the church. That should not surprise us because every single person is made in the image of God, right? All I'm saying is we want to be wary not to to align ourselves up too much with the world when it comes into conflict with the kingdom of God. Okay, again, we pray these things because we can't will ourselves to accomplish them without God's help. Jesus knew that, which is why he prays it. And the fifth gift that Jesus prays for us is related to our being in the world, but not of it. He prays that the Father would set us apart, sanctify us. That's in your translation, sanctify us, or consecrate us is another English translation for what he's doing here. That means uh, to take something that's ordinary and to make it holy. I guess an example would be this room right here. This room is something we call, in this church, we call it a sanctuary, right? Um, But it's not a sanctuary because it's built out of magical things. Like, it's just wood and plaster, stone on the outside, vinyl siding that's kind of ugly on there. You know, it's it's like, it could be anything. It could be anything. It could, we, uh, in fact, a lot of church buildings around town, unfortunately, have 
and turned into karate studios and, you know, warehouses and things like that. So it's not the stuff that it's made out of, but this is a sanctuary. It's sanctified. It's set apart. It's built out of mundane things, wood things and stone things, but it's set apart because of how we use it. We've set it off as holy. In fact, usually we're pretty good about not letting people run and play and shoot finger darts in here, or we might do that just across that wall. Now we're getting into a whole other arguments because I would say that's just as holy a place as this is holy a place, but this is set apart for a different use. Do you understand? It's set apart. It's sanctified. And the amazing thing is that Jesus knows we cannot sanctify ourselves. We can't make ourselves holy. So what are we to do then? Well, hear the good news in verse 19. Jesus prays, for, our, for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves might be sanctified in the truth. High priests, prophets, Moses himself, none of them could make themselves holy. Only God can do that. And Jesus here shows his divine nature, not only by sanctifying himself, no one could just do that, but by covering us in his holiness. It's so weird. I was thinking about this. I was talking to Ben about food handler permits the other day, and it just made me think of this lame illustration. That's all I got. You got a Lord of the Rings and a, and a Narnia. That's pretty good. So, um, But I was thinking about the egg hunt, and I was thinking about how when we serve food to people, one person on that food service team has to have their food handler's permit. They have to take the test and be certified and have their little permit. And then, by extension of their food handler's permit, they can kind of, by their powers, um, you can serve alongside them. And our whole group can serve, and we can serve the community because one person has their food handler's permit. Now, in a much more significant sense, you can see how this all falls apart when we push it too hard, but Jesus covers us through faith in him in a way that the Bible suggests that his his righteousness covers you and I. So as we're associated with him through faith, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. So it's like, It's like God sees us as though we are as righteous as Jesus. And we could probably serve food without gloves or something. I don't know, some superpowers. But isn't that great? So it makes me want to say, Father, hear his prayer. Thank you for seeing us as justified and holy even when we struggle to live it out. It's a powerful gift for the church on mission. The sixth gift Jesus prays for us is clarity of mission. He prays, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. First of all, don't miss this. I mean, this is so good. It's a gift of purpose. It's a gift of purpose. We aren't just floating through life wondering why we're here, what we're supposed to be doing. We've been sent for a mission. The difference is, whereas Jesus came to point people to himself, he's like, I am the Father in the flesh. When you see me, when you hear me, put your faith in me because that's how salvation comes. Now, Jesus dies, ascends, sends us his Holy Spirit who lives in you and me and us as a church. The difference is we're not saying, look at us, come, we are your Savior. Quite different. We're saying, look at him. That's why all these sermons are about Jesus, all these songs are about Jesus, and 
Some of them encourage us to point others to Jesus, but it's all about Jesus for the, for the disciples, right? And it's all about Jesus for us. So it's, so it's a gift of purpose. Our mission is to point people to Jesus. And there are a million ways to do that, from plumbers to pastors to teachers and people on the other end of a phone, technical support operators. Uh, all of those types of people can be pointing people to Jesus, And so when you're discouraged by the state of the world or feeling listless in life, remember, breathe. You weren't called to save the world. You were called to point people to the one who saves the world. And the way you do that is through your speech and through your actions. So we mimic the one who is going to save the world, and we live as though that kingdom are breaking in now, because it is, so that means we make decisions that are good for the earth and for people, but never get, feel all that pressure that, uh, if I had just erased my carbon footprint one more pound of carbon last year, I would have saved the world. No, you wouldn't. It doesn't mean you give up, but what it means is don't feel all the pressure, right? We point people to the Savior and we mimic him the best we can. Okay? That is so freeing. Father, hear his prayer. Help me to remember that I have been sent. Help the church to remember that she has been sent. And thank you that we are not the Savior. We are, not the, or we are the ones who have met the Savior and gladly point people to him. That's a much different... Oh, that's so freeing. Oh, so good. Finally, we get the seventh gift Jesus prays for us who are sent out on mission. And that is the fact that despite all of our sinfulness, all of our disunity, all of our arrogance, and all of our timidity and failure, Jesus makes us fruitful in mission. He prays about those who will believe through the word of the original 11 disciples and those who will come after. And apparently the prayer worked, because I'm looking out at a bunch of people, and I know most of your stories, and you're at least bumbling in the right direction with me toward Jesus, your disciples. And that means that the Father has heard this prayer way back when, and continues to hear it for generation after generation, and I've got to have faith that it's not going to end with you and me. Not if we can help it, right? <laughs> not if he's faithful. That that our mission is bumbly and full of failure and fits and starts as it is as a church? Well, maybe we just shouldn't take ourselves too seriously, right? The, the gift of this prayer is that our mission will be fruitful because God will make it fruitful, because Jesus has asked for it. Let that be an encouragement to us as well. Father, hear his prayer. Encourage us by the reality that the fruit of the mission is produced by your power and your grace, not our perfection, not our programs, not our efficiency. Help us to be less obsessed with ourselves and more passionate about your mission and your glory and our neighbor's good. Thank you for praying these seven gifts over us as you send us on mission. Holy Spirit, help us to pray along these same themes not only for our church, and not only for the church in the world, but for the church of future generations to come. Amen.